Hi, my name is Lloyd Sarbats, and this podcast is brought to you by Liberia, a bookshop by Second Home. In this episode, I welcome John Grindrod, author of Concretopia and Outskirts. Together with Iconicon, these books form a loose trilogy about how the British have planned, built, lived and worked over the last 80 years. In this discussion, following John's live presentation at Liberia, we dive into the formal appraisal of the buildings and developments, the anecdotes from politicians, architects, developers and local residents, and beyond into his love of literature and how they allude to the impact of the stories he shares. I hope you enjoy it. One of the things I really enjoyed about the book, John, is that um, you've got you've got those accounts, uh, like those really candid interviews uh, with politicians like Michael Heseltine. You've got the developers, um, the local residents, the architects, uh, people like uh, Carla and Sarah who were like working on Docklands and Canary Wharfens. You get this real kind of social history along with the. Um, what you would expect from a book on architecture. Um, so discussing like the formal looks, aesthetics, and how these projects come about. But then you've also got your personality um, kind of imbued uh, throughout the text with the references to popular culture and, you know, David Byrne, Talking Heads, um, what was it, David Bowie, um, Ashes to Ashes, yeah, all of these things. I, I wouldn't want to call it snarky because it isn't, but it's, it's like an endearing humour that I feel like is really kind of relevant of the Brits. It's like, I love this so much, I'm going to take the piss. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, there is a kind of affectionate humour uh, mm. to a lot of it. And then some of it, some of it is a bit snarky and then some of it is just like pure kind of like geek love or something. So yeah, it, it, it's got kind of, um, I sort of, I'm very keen to try and try and get a, you know, a sense of humour and, and kind of lightness into, into what could be quite a heavy subject. And I, you know, I very much kind of write these books as the kind of books that I would like to read on these sort of subjects, which is something that is a, you know, that tells stories rather than it being too kind of um, remote or kind of, you know, and also something that's quite involved in the story. So not very voice of God, but something that's a bit kind of more humanized. So, So that's what I'm aiming for. And sometimes, Sometimes I get there and sometimes I don't. It's sort of odd, really, you know, reading back things. Sometimes I think, oh, I could have pushed that a bit more. And then sometimes I think, oh, I really pushed that, didn't I? Those kind of discussions you get, um, I feel like you're one of those people that, because of your curiosity, you allowed people to speak. It's almost like you just kind of gave them the space to really um, share um, their like their personal experiences, whether it was as a first time buyer for a, a Barrett's or a Wimpy home or someone uh, with the tendencies of the grandiose <coughs> Hessel time. Um, <laughs> and, you know, allowing them to kind of um, really kind of colour between the lines that you've drawn out as just a curious observer. And I think that's what makes your kind of trio of books like really kind of cool. Oh, thank you. I mean, one of the things is, is that you sort of tend to get a sort of a mixture of different reactions to um, 
to being asked these questions you know pe people sort of are either I don't understand why you're interested in this but okay I'll go along with it and I'll tell you about all about this thing and they're sort of surprised that their own what they consider to be a sort of quite a personal and specific and small story that isn't sort of applicable to anyone else why I'm interested in it but actually sort of it's easy for I think any of us to sort of think you know that our own personal story has got no kind of like resonance with anyone else but of course quite often you know our experiences do have a huge resonance with other people we just don't know that because we don't tell them those things and um so I think there's sometimes there's that kind of reaction where people that sort of you know are spilling this stuff to me in a in a slightly amazed I can't believe I can even remember that and then this weird thing happened and then you know and that's quite nice because you I sort of feel like I'm getting a sort of a, a version of a version of a bit of somebody's history that maybe they haven't rehearsed or sort of thought about particularly and is sort of coming back to them quite fresh so quite often these memories are sort of are you know occurring to people for the first time in a long time you know while they're while they're talking to me which is which is a, a sort of miraculous thing to see happening and then you get people who are very used to kind of you know having a having a voice people who are you know politicians or architects or you know people that are used to getting up and talking about their work and having a professional opinion and for being you know to be listened to they're used to being listened to and they sort of that's you know that's what they expect in life and then so sometimes I think asking them more kind of disarming questions about well, but what was it actually like to do that you know I, I know that you did it and I know that it happened and I know that all these decisions were but what did it actually feel like in the moment to be there you know and then and then sort of trying to get the sort of the more like granular stories out because that because sometimes because you can sort of basically, you know, with those sort of big interviews, you can find all of the big stuff out just by researching. That's easy in a way. But what you can't find out is the things that I want to find out, which is what, you know, you were standing there on a horrible rainy day, you know, on basically a sort of a chemical wasteland of, uh, you know, the gasometer site at um, uh, in Greenwich. And you're thinking, oh, we, we're going to have to build you know, some kind of celebratory monument here to the millennium. And, you know, there's a sort of Siberian wind blowing in, you know, and, and that, you know, getting those kind of stories from architects is much more interesting because you really, really get a feeling of what it must have been like at the time to have been faced with a huge daunting task of doing this thing rather than it feeling like the inevitable consequence of my genius and history. And, you know, I'm not really interested in that, you know, but I am interested in the, the actual human mechanics of how on earth you do that. How do you do, how do you create that building? How do you have that thought and, and do these things? So sometimes you're trying to kind of cut through that, that myth. Those stories I think are infinitely more insightful than, um, is it Cesar Pelli who mm. designed uh, One Canada Square in Canary Wharf and he has that typical polish that you would expect from an architect who's used to talking about his work, like the grandiose statements. Yeah, that, yeah he talks about One Canada Square being a skyscraper as opposed to a high rise. Yeah, those, those stories that you captured were really great and I, I think that's what I loved about the book. Um, but also the other thing that we haven't 
discussed now and um, you didn't really touch on in the presentation you gave uh, at Liberia was um, those more popular culture references. So you open up the book quite early on with a reference to The City and the City by China Mayville. And yeah. And just share why you, why you shared those kind of uh, insights and links to those books in particular. Yeah, I, one of the things that sort of trying to kind of do a book like this is sort of trying to kind of unlock a sort of different way of looking at somewhere that you maybe take for granted or maybe just accept is there and never really think about. And I think for me, particularly The City in the City, that novel really sort of unlocked a sort of bit of my brain that had, had been grappling with this sort of problem of how different eras and different classes and and different sorts of environments have been kind of created in the same place sort of intermingled with one another like in uh, around Docklands or like in you know Cardiff Bay or sort of all over the country this sort of thing was happening in this in this sort of post-1980 period um, and you would get um, an existing very poor community you would then have you know an intervention of some uh some kind of regeneration of a, a few particular buildings that would attract in sort of a different class of person and there would be much more expensive kind of um bit of infrastructure put in that was sort of around those places and then gradually you end up with sort of these two different sort of cultures and environments kind of intermingled with one another in a way that that they weren't really interacting and it was almost like they didn't exist together even though they were literally next door to one another and sometimes not even kind of split in a kind of clean kind of you know one sort of era and one sort of type of occupant is on this side and one era one sort of type of occupant is on the other side but actually very kind of intermingled sort of street by street building by building in a lot of places mm. in in certainly in you know if you walk around the Isle of Dogs a lot of the Isle of Dogs is very like that and I think in the city in the city because he's allowed his imagination to sort of push that idea just a bit further um and into this kind of sort of Blade Runner, noirish, futuristic thriller that he sort of come up with. Um, and having these two different cities, uh, Basil and Alcoma, sort of having grown up on exactly the same <laughs> bit of land, it sort of forced intermingled with one another. And then having the occupants of the cities having to screen out the other city and the other city's inhabitants and the other city's cars and the other city's weeds in the pavement and gardens and you know everything having to pretend that they can't see that stuff and having to deny that it's there it was like a sort of a brilliant kind of imaginative extension of the reality that we are living with and i just felt like that magnification that he did there really helped me actually understand what we've actually done because it was a it was a very helpful kind of slight exaggeration of the problems that we've 
actually ended up with with these kind of strange intermingled landscapes where we're denying you know one is denying the other all the time and we you know and those occupants you know I used to live in Elephant and Castle and it was very you know that was a that was a thing there that you could see very much that that it, everybody lives very very kind of closely together yeah. but you don't really have a kind of unified kind of single community or a unified single kind of place or meeting point for everyone everybody you know different communities and different different kind of groups are sort of meeting and seeing each other and sort of ignoring whole other bits of the landscape and that's been exaggerated much more since a lot of the social housing has been knocked down and replaced by these sort of mega blocks that have all gone up so yeah so that's a kind of you know that is an accelerated thing so that feels like we're almost we're almost moving into that period where the city in the city is feeling a bit more like a real life documentary in some places like that and less like a kind of fantasy that maybe it was when he started writing it yeah and I think actually also um I think John Lanchester's Capital kind of touches on quite a lot of this stuff as well but in a really different way it's a totally different sort of book and a totally different voice um but actually there are a lot of the same issues there and in that rather than you know in in a city in a city the crime is the thing and the detective is the thing that sort of begins to pull these different worlds together or kind of break through them and so that he can kind of see the different worlds mm-hmm. and in um and in capital you've got the you know you've got the postcards going through people's letterboxes and uh you know that kind of you know there, there's a sort of like anxiety that sort of brings everyone together mm-hmm. um and that is um you know that that's sort of quite an interesting way of doing it but he really sort of he deliberately you know tells the stories of very different people living on this street uh in Clapham that, that you know that you know some of them are sort of you know mega pimping their houses and some of them are you know like very elderly and have been there forever and it it just you get a really good idea of different sorts of communities living sort of cheap by jowl but not really involved in each other's lives and not really knowing anything about their neighbours and being very kind of you know sort of separate from one another mm. and, and and I sort of it's interesting they're two incredibly different novels but they but they sort of do both do something quite similar in that way yeah there's probably like a sort of there's probably like a seed of kind of Dickensian kind of panoramic character kind of commentary that they both have yeah but it's so interesting how that that is sort of in as diametrically opposed as possible in terms of their style and the way that they go about the actual you know storytelling and and then you um you going back to the Docklands because um your you reference I think you open a chapter actually with um uh Michael Holland or Matthew Holland isn't Mm. it in uh, Penelope Lively's um, City of the Mind. And that does feel like uh, art is imitating life, um, as you kind of allude to um, in, in those passages. Um, do you mind just diving into yeah. why, why that book? Because that, 
before our conversation and seeing it in, the, in your book, I'd never even known that Penelope had written that. No, it's a really relatively unknown book by Penelope Larkin. She has written a lot of books, so, you know, some of them have kind of disappeared and some of them are still kind of, you know, remained a very kind of current, current works. And this one has really disappeared. And it is from the early 90s. One of the things I really liked about it is it's, sort of, it's, it's quite a psychic... Um, a psychogeographic novel actually it's a very you know it's it's like you know Sebald or you know it it could be Ian Sinclair you know there's a there's a sort of thing about it you know it feels very much part of you know those Patrick Keeler films you know it feels like that that sort of world and uh she I think in a lot of her books she does a thing where she talks about kind of haunted environment, environments being kind of haunted by elements of their past that comes back. And you get that in their children's books, and you get that in a lot of their adult books as well. And in The City of the Mind, she is writing about an architect who is who's designed a big block that's going up in Docklands at the point when Canary Wharf was being rebuilt. So it was sort of, it was very kind of prescient at the time, you know, it was a very kind of of the moment novel. And what she does in it is she talks a lot about the history of uh, the docks and Docklands and a lot about the future of it and the kind of current state of it as it's being rebuilt. And the architect's quite, it's quite a melancholy novel. Uh, the architect is going through a divorce. It's, it's got a kind of, you know, it's got these kind of layers of his personal history and then the city's personal history and, you know, the actual site that they're doing, the, the, the history of that site and all those things kind of mixed up with one another. And she tells it really beautifully, but it is quite a, it's, it's a very kind of elegiac book and really interesting. And it's not, you know, when you look at, you know, in the US, you know, the people that were covering the equivalent sort of stuff like Tom Wolf or you know you know all all of those kind of you know frat pack novelists that were happening you know at that at that time uh you know and you think of like American Psycho you know that they, they were sort of you know populating that equivalent kind of moneyed um financial uh environment uh are very very kind of aggressive and brash and surfacy and bright and cold and kind of you know play with sort of ideas of sort of you know sociopathic characters and stuff mm -hmm. and that is very interesting that whereas Penelope Lively's version of writing about that is this very sort of you know it's almost like it's almost like Brideshead Revisited you know it's something where you've got you've the novel kind of you know, reveals a kind of hidden, sort of sad, sort of elegiac past behind this surface of, you know, superficial glamour uh, uh, that, you know, that, that we're seeing. So it's a, it's a really great book, but it's very underread. I think more people should read it. It's a really good one. And yeah. I can imagine that I think if people do, do re-engage with it again, I think it, I think it could it could be a really good way of unlocking a bit of London's history in fiction that has been lost. Yeah, it, it almost seems like Penelope's written um, something that's very kind of full of empathy and compassion. Um, and I, the obvious um, comparison would be like with the, uh, the Brett Easton Ellis's Tom Wolfe's, it does, it does feel like the, the American writers of that generation were 
preoccupied by the superficial and Penelope's actually going for something that's a bit more of a universal quality. Um, yeah, and I think they're probably like all deliberate choices, aren't they? It's not accidents that, you know, those American writers were writing like that. It was a very much a, you know, a, an attempt to encapsulate the culture, which was telling you that this was the way to be successful. Yeah. So those novels are kind of grotesque and deliberately exaggerated and formally kind of similar in, in quite a lot of ways. And, you know, she is coming out of a very different tradition and it does feel more, you know, she does, she does feel more connected to a sort of, you know, a very kind of English tradition of those, those quite kind of quiet, um, introspective uh, novels rather than, rather than it, you know, and I think that's one of the things I found really brilliant about it was that you would expect it to feel panoramic in a sort of grandstanding kind of way, you know, in a sort of Peter Ackroyd kind of, you know, London, you know, sort of big, you know. Yeah. and she, she deals with, but she deals with it in that, in that lovely, kind of intimate way that she writes about everything, you know, that so that, you know, something as big as London sort of, you, you feel great compassion towards it. You don't, it doesn't feel like some icy monolith that, you know, you can never understand or it's beyond you. And it's not, it's not the opposite of the sort of Dickens thing that was sort of with, with, um, uh, with John Lanchester. It's, you know, this is a very intimate, sort of quiet, introspective way of looking at that subject. I, and I think that's very interesting that she that she can do that because that isn't that's not an obvious way to go. And it must be quite it must be a challenge to funnel that sort of that idea of writing a, about a big historical moment and writing about the history of London and all of that stuff, but then still do it in a really intimate way. That is an extraordinary thing to be able to do. Yeah, you used the word, um, like the line, you talk about a disconnect between um, what is to be built and the histories of the past. Um, and it's not just confined to London that you explore this in, in, in Iconicon. Um, do you want to talk about uh, the other places that you visited just briefly, like Liverpool and Leeds? Glasgow. Yeah, ab yeah, absolutely. And and you know, one of the really brilliantly interesting things about uh, being able to do a book like this is to be able to go go and travel around and, and see places and sort of learn history for myself. Because I'm not one of those people that sort of goes in with a kind of great agenda and kind of thinks. Oh, this is the story on it of of the time, and I'm just going to impose that on everything, you know. And I, you know, and I hope I don't do that. And I, I try not to. I try and be kind of open-minded. And so, as a result, sort of end up finding out sort of odd stories that I that I love, you know. So, yeah, Leeds is, was very interesting because um, uh, one of the things I was very keen to write about was postmodern architecture, and Leeds had its own version of postmodern architecture called the Leeds Look which is like a really shy version of postmodernism. Um, and, you know, so that story is, <laughs> worked as a sort of brilliant contrast to writing about Terry Farrell's work in London, which is incredibly exuberant and 
you know, joyful. And whereas Le the Leeds look is, is, is like, a, you know, it's, it's sort of like a John Major version of that, you know, it's very, very quiet and, you know, sort of not, not exuberant in any way. Um, and, and that was all sort of based on the idea of Leeds being a brick city and being, you know, an industrial city and it's, you know, all of the all of this new architecture had to kind of reference that old architecture, and it, in a way that kind of slightly killed it because it stopped it being of the moment enough. You know, so it, it so the leads look is sort of interesting in that in that respect. So that was a that was a fun thing to sort of find out about. Um, Manchester is sort of endlessly interesting. Um, and, you know, Manchester was a sort of fascinating story to write about of, of sort of cultural regeneration, you know, which is a really big story in this era. Um, not least because you get all the millennium monuments all around the country, which is like a really big cultural uh, reinvention. You know, that's a, that's a sort of conscious attempt to do that. Um, but Manchester, you know, has sort of taken the kind of youth culture um, of the sort of late 70s, early 80s, that it kind of totally, you know, was sort of world leading in. And then as, as sort of placed that kind of idea of youth culture at, at, at the heart of its reinvention of the city. So rather than reinventing the sort of city centre as a kind of family place or as a, you know, as a, a place for everyone, it sort of actually feels like they've really gone hell for leather into making it feel like it's the sort of youth capital of Britain, you know, that, that that reinvention there is using that sort of cultural capital that they have um, to maximum effect. Um, so I sort of found that quite interesting with, with Manchester, that it, it's the, the way that it's kind of developed has come very much out of that kind of cultural impulse. Um, uh, I mean, everywhere I went sort of had sort of fascinating stories. So it, it <laughs> it's a bit kind of overwhelming thinking about it, really. I mean, there's Millennium Projects themselves, you know, they were all over the country, you know, and most of them are quite successful. I mean, more successful than we remember them being. And that is, that's very interesting. But again, that was a sort of attempt to sort of use education and culture to sort of slightly re-engineer us as a nation and make us into a more aspirational, um, uh, you know, that whole thing about lifelong learning, which was a real new labor kind of obsession. You know, it was that, that stuff sort of very much built into these buildings. And that I found very interesting. So in Liverpool, I guess you see the sort of seeds of that happening in the, 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 um, uh, the Garden Festival which is in the early 80s, sort of shortly after there have been riots in the city and Heseltown goes there and is, you know, sort of sets up a, a kind of office there for a bit and, you know, gets kind of stuck into trying to work out how you regenerate a city that's had no investment for a really long time and then brings in a sort of load of private investment. So it becomes a sort of different sort of regeneration from the sort of regeneration that was happening a generation before which was all very kind of government funded and all very sort of um controlled by all these very kind of big ethical 
things around the sort of welfare state and that sort of stuff. You know, the stuff that ends up, you know, happening uh, in Liverpool, like the Garden Festival or the regeneration of Albert Dock, you know, is all around kind of private companies or galleries or that sort of thing, you know, and it's sort of interesting that that, that is the sort of mechanism that's used to kind of do regeneration. But then by the end of the period that I'm writing about, there's this amazing story of Granby, uh, Granby Four Streets, which, which is a regeneration project led by some people that have been living for a long time in a few streets in Liverpool that have been totally sort of laying waste to in the riots and never really rebuilt. So a lot of those places just remained empty for a really, really long time. So the residents got absolutely sick to death of it in the early noughties started to sort of take things into their own hands, started um, to clean the streets up, set up a street market, got some advice, and they've ended up kind of um, buying, you know, grouping together, buying that area um, for in sort of perpetuity as a sort of community land trust. And then they won the won the Turner Prize of all things with this project, you know, and it's a really like incredibly inspiring, beautiful story of this community, you know, actually sort of bringing, bringing to bear their own, um, their, their own <laughs> considerable might, considering, you know, you would have thought that, you, you know, most of us feel totally disempowered. Yeah. Um, they actually, you know, owned, totally owned the area, you know, and thought, well, we can do this. And, uh, and it's led to this thing. And, you know, they've got, a, they've even, you know, two of the houses that they couldn't regenerate got knocked together and then turned into like a big sort of winter garden. You know, they replaced the roof with glass and they've got trees growing in it. And it's like a beautiful community garden indoors in these two knocked together houses. It's, it's a really like spectacular, beautiful thing. And it's so friendly. It's, a, you know, like it's got a real, you know, everybody sitting out in the street chatting vibe to it. Like, it's just the opposite of when I went around Docklands, you know, like it was just the total, total sort of conceptual and philosophical opposite of that. So yeah, all the stories from everywhere were, ju were just so different from one another. Although there were lots of, there were lots of the similar impulses going on, but they would just bloom in a quite a different way, which was, I found fascinating. I guess the strength of what they've achieved is showing a third way because um, a lot of your book, you're talking about um, government, municipality, those kind of schemes uh, in the post-war um, generations. Then you've got the uh, PPI, the public-private initiatives. Um, and then you've got uh, Granbury, uh, Granby even. Um, and one, I, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, where do you think we've gone wrong uh, in terms of you know, as, as a curious um, kind of fan of architecture and these icons, but also where do you think um, we potentially should be kind of looking in, in terms of uh, regeneration and building these spaces that people, you know, feel proud of and feel part of? I think, the, for me, I think the main issue is... Uh, people quite often kind of land on the architects or the planners and sort of say, well, it's there, you know, it's their fault. But I think actually, I think the issue is with politicians and with developers, because ultimately they're the people that allow projects to happen or finance the projects. And they're the people that, you know, the developers are the people that end up making money out of them. And 
that I think is the issue. The main issue is that these projects are being built for the wrong reason. Um, so you can have the best architects in the world with the best of intentions, but if you're ultimately just building another office block that you don't need somewhere, well, the, you know, there's there's nothing that can be done to make that a better thing. Ultimately, that's always going to be a sort of a, a pointless exercise that is just there, you know, as an asset for somebody and not there as a thing to make that area better or that community knit together or, you know, to be a thing that people on the ground you know, actually need. Um, so for me, I feel like there is a, I mean, you know, it's like a sort of form of re-socialization or something, you know what I mean? I feel like, you know, you know, certain people at the top of the ladder here making these things happen have totally lost empathy or the ability to kind of understand the that these things really matter and are really important and that they're not just a financial transaction or an asset or an abstract thing. These are gonna affect, you know, whether they're gonna affect, you know, the climate because we'll be building stuff that we don't need uh, needlessly or whether they're just gonna affect kind of communities because they will force people out because no, you know, the people, the population that was living there won't be able to afford these new places and all that stuff. You know, I I feel for me, I feel like that is the really big issue. And I think, you know, when I talk to architects and I talk to architecture students and stuff, you know, these are really sort of socially engaged group of people who, if they were allowed to work on the kind of projects that they think we need. I think we probably would end up with much better environments, but mm. actually that isn't what happens. You know, they, they can't, they don't, they don't make these projects up. They have to, you know, they're only working for a client who's hired them to do something. And that's the issue is the people that are hiring people to do stuff, the people who've got the money and the influence. Um, that's, that's where the issue is, I think. Yeah, it, it feels like um, it's either a lack of imagination on the finance side or um, it's really restrictive legislation. So if you're building residential kind of housing, um, I think by law you have to have 10% is like mixed use. Um, and so you, you've got this kind of percentage that you could use for something other than um, what the primary purpose is, but it always comes back to retail and then that becomes another yeah. Tesco's or Sainsbury's or yeah, and you get, you know, you get kind of towns kind of eating themselves by, you know, you have the high street, then you have an out-of-town shopping, they allow, you know, the council allows an out-of-town shopping centre, that kills the high street. So then the council then, years later, then decide they're going to build a mega new shopping centre in the middle of town that then kills the out-of-town shopping centre. Meanwhile, they've bought, there's some anonymous sheds on the very edge of town that are for, you know, online retailers and they're killing the, the you know, they're killing the, the, the brand new mall that they've just created. And, you know, somebody's allowing all that stuff to happen and it's absurd. You know, it's absurd that somebody, you know, that, and part of that is due to kind of people sort of 
myth-making and, and empire-building, you know, you know, politicians kind of going, I'm going to make my mark with this. And if everybody could just stop trying to make their bloody mark, <laughs> you know, that would be brilliant. You know, we might end up with better places. But unfortunately, people always think that they've got to kind of, you know, I've got to show that I've got to be a new broom. I've got to change everything. I'm going to impose my will on everything. And sometimes what we need is something a bit more subtle than that. Yeah, it feels like if people could dissolve their ego and just take a back seat for a second. Exactly. Uh, Boris, have a sit down, nice cup of tea. <laughs> but um, yeah, thinking, like just listening to you talk and um, thinking about those kind of criticisms, um, it, it almost feels like if uh, you, you write about BedZed and if, if legislation actually included something on the ecological sustainable side um, and, and that was a percentage of, of the space used I feel like um, that would actually give architects a lot of license to really kind of showcase their like their social impact and their creativity yeah and actually it's very it's very interesting when you look at um, we look at Goldsmith Street uh, which won uh, the Sterling Prize a couple of years ago in Norwich that they had such a battle because they decided, because there were all the planning rules about, you know, how wide the streets had to be, how much parking you had to have, all that sort of stuff. And they, they, they were just like, well, we're not having it. We're not having it. We're creating all these passive houses, for, you know, and they're council houses and they're passive houses. Um, what would be the point of going to that effort if you're then going to just have a load of parking bays everywhere? It's ridiculous. So no, in fact, we're going to have narrow streets so that you can't have your I mean, SUVs everywhere. Um, and you're going to create something that's much more, that feels much more dense and it feels more like a community and less kind of sprawly and suburban. Um, and that was a sort of brilliant intervention by those architects, uh, Mikhail Riches and, and Kathy Hawley, you know, to kind of do that and to insist that this was the way that they that they wanted the the you know their scheme to work and you know and actually you know, amazing brilliant on Norwich for for building it and and you know putting that through and allowing it even though it broke all their rules um absolutely amazing you know and that is a trailblazing thing and that is a that is a great example I think of what you were saying you know about you know architects actually being able to use that kind of um a combination of sort of social and environmental concerns uh, as a key driver of the thing that they end up designing and building and so that you end up with a place ultimately that's brilliant you know that's absolutely brilliant you know it's one of the most sort of beloved new bits of architecture that's been built in this whole period it's, it's fantastic and and it all comes about by people breaking the rules of what was supposed to what you were supposed to allow and we're so used to rules being broken the other way of people jettisoning the social housing you know commitment that they were supposed to have had you know oh we couldn't do it, it would have made things too unaffordable so we had to drop it terrible our shareholders um we're used to that but you know it's nice to see the rules being broken the other way for a really positive reason and for that then to be a huge roaring success so you know if we could have a lot more goldsmith streets going up that would be a that would be a heartening development wouldn't it for a final question um you've talked about 
your three books just being almost like a loose trilogy, a development, mm. you know, um, based on your interest in discovering something else as you're writing one. Do you, do you foresee a fourth book? Um, is there something that's come out of Iconicon that's made you go, hmm, I want to explore that? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I have kind of, I've, I've sort of bricked myself into a corner of no, really. Um, <laughs> unless I live for like, if I spend 40 years writing another book about the next 40 years, it's quite hard to know where, where a fourth book would come from that would make sense. So I think, yeah, I think it's probably time for a bit of a, a change of emphasis. And, and I think what, one thing I'm sort of quite interested in doing is that all the things I've written have been quite sprawling because they've I've written about long time periods and geographically different um, places, trying to tell a sort of big narrative around those things to sort of draw them together. And maybe the thing that I would like to do next would be something that concentrated more on telling the story of one thing in more detail, rather than trying to tell the story of everything. Thank you for listening. I wish to thank John for sharing his time, enthusiasm and research. Visit our website, liberia.io, for news of future events and book recommendations.